Ah, oh, for Christ's sake, Anakin. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. I'm your host, Matthew Nugabauer, coming to you live to air in windy, overcast, kind of cool, suburban Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Hey, it's autumn. What can you do, right? Uh, have gone on some walks, got the, got some sun in, which is, which is fun and nice. Uh, in case you need to know, it is Thursday, October 8th, 2020, or of course the Thursday after the 18th Sunday after Pentecost. If you're counting, yes, the weeks go on and on. I am joined, as always, by the greatest droid in the galaxy, R2-D2. Say hello, R2. I guess he's excited to be here. Uh, hopefully, hopefully you are too. And of course, my trusty water bottle. I won't make any jokes this time. Gotta keep hydrated, right? Uh... Tonight we've got a uh, jam-packed episode for you. Uh, i got two weeks of comics briefly to talk about. I tried to fit in an episode last week. I will do my darndest to do at least at, at least every two weeks, if not every week here. got two weeks of comics to talk about. For our main topic, uh, we'll be finally concluding our series on Qui-Gon Jinn and Master and Apprentice. His turn from symbolic interpretation of prophecy that he starts out with and he grows up with to a literalism um, of these prophecies and of his own dreams and that things that prime him to then apply the Chosen One prophecy to Anakin Skywalker in Episode 1 uh, when he meets him on Tatooine in primes him to apply them in a more literal way than he would have before. And as a bonus part of this discussion, I'm going to have some fun, go through a few of the prophecies that have been listed and named in Master and Apprentice. And I'm going to see what they might refer to uh, in light of the later events of the Skywalker saga of the fall of the Jedi. And I'll explain the theological Christian theological rationale for doing that. Cause there is one, believe me, but just under the wire before we get to all of that. Well, before we get to uh, at least, at least the fine, the main topic uh, fresh off the high Republic virtual panel at New York comic con. I will be sure to post that link in the description um, a day after releasing the scroll for the High Republic era, which I, I don't have on me, but you can go find that. Um, the scroll itself has some Tales of the Jedi vibes uh, in that a little bit. I'll, I'll give my thoughts on, on that panel. But first, I'll start with the pull list. And, you know, in Star Wars comics, it was impossible really to follow up that epic week that saw both uh, the ongoing run number six and Vader, Greg Charles Soule's ongoing run number six, and Greg Peck's Vader number five. Um, you can go back to my last episode, my, a bit of my thoughts on that. Past two weeks, we saw Bounty Hunters number five, Afra number four, and Battle Tales, the Adventures Battle Tales number five. Uh, Bounty Hunters, the, as a run, it's okay. Uh, if you if you like underworld bounty hunting gritty stuff. Uh, it's 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 your thing. The story itself is a bit derivative of the Mandalorian, but without any kind of the Jedi vibes. And so, I'm gonna keep doing it. I'm completest. The story's enjoyable, but a bit derivative. A bit a bit not derivative. Seeming too similar in in a vulnerable young child being taken under the wing of a gruff bounty hunter. <laughs> Put it that way. 
Afra is keeping up with the pace and lore of uh, of everything that's come before with her. Uh, definitely enjoying it. I won't say it's my absolute favorite, but definitely, you know, if, if you enjoy Afra, if you enjoy lore, and if you enjoy her expected level of snark <laughs> and acerbic wit, then that's fun. Battle Tales, I mean, that's a bit more of a kid's line that... It, you know, it does have that nugget of truth and, and lesson in it. And interestingly enough, this last one, I just read it last night, Kenobi, Obi-Wan Kenobi, learning the lesson of the Gungans already uh, and, and a similar story to what he, what Luke then encounters on Endor with the Ewoks. So um, some interesting connections there. Again, bringing up this pull list in, in part because uh, we'll definitely be doing the, doing comment looking at comics for the mandalorian or not mandalorian no, i'm sorry for the high republic um, before we finish up this section i want to mention two indie books that uh the their some of their issues have come out a few weeks ago i believe i'm discovered country number eight and engine ward number three both of these books have star wars connections um and fairly strong ones so undiscovered country is, is written by Charles Sewell, along with Scott Snyder, who writes, I believe, for DC. And Undiscovered Country, it's a really, it, not too related to the Star Trek film, which is a great film, but <laughs> that's an aside. Undiscovered Country is a really intriguing look at an isolationist future America, or as we've now come to discover, multiple Americas within the former United States. And um, I think Scott Snyder, in a, in a little bit of a blurb, said, you know, it's set in the future, but like all good science fiction and speculative fiction, it's it's about the present, about a divided America and an isolationist, exceptionalist America that's turned in on itself. And it's fascinating, uh, you know, being from in Canada here, we, you know, we, we take the open border for granted. For the U.S. to close the border would affect us more than any other country on the planet, right? <laughs> um, because of all our trade and our cultural, cultural exchange. And I would like them to actually go into that a little bit, how that affects us. But that's not really the focus of their story. What's fascinating, of course, is right now the border's closed because you know we've flattened the curve and we, we're doing okay here in Ontario. We're in a second wave, but you know hospitals are... You know, the, the, the curve is flat enough for hospitals, I think, to be able to manage fairly well. But in the U.S., it's out of control, and tragically. And I'll get to a bit more of that when I talk about the High Republic panel. <laughs> um, but the border's closed for the first time. I can't hop in a car, and if I want to go to Buffalo or to shop or whatever, I can't do that. Um, if, if I have friends, meet friends on Instagram or whatever... Who, who want to come visit, they can't. Um, celebration was canceled. Couldn't go, we couldn't, not just because we, you know, not because the border's closed, but because of the circumstances generally. So it's this fascinating psychological thing going on that sort of mirrors the reality uh, of an insular turned into on itself America. And um, Undiscovered Country is exploring that in different ways. Um, then the next book, Engine Ward by George Mann, and he wrote the semi-canon 
meditations, I'm calling it, myths and fables, uh, Star Wars myths and fables, which are yeah, canon adjacent. Uh, things are clearly about certain characters. Anyway, that's, that's another topic. But he also more recently wrote Dark Legend, which is the dark side version of that. Engine Ward is his indie comic that is off to a great start three issues in. It's got some really neat world building. So I think its tagline is Earth is an ancient myth that's been forgotten about. Um, I'm definitely already hooked on the characters and what they care about. And the art style is really engrossing. Very medieval town, but with robots and maybe aliens. Um, a lot of very linear angular style uh, the most interesting point for me in this book is that it partly involves a zodiac-esque pantheon of would-be gods and they claim to be taking care of normal folk but really they're, they're just out for their own uh, their own dominance and preserve their own dominance the main thing is there's supposedly on this planet where the normal folk are there's a, a massive drought and yet here's these gods in this pantheon that have pools it's almost sort of like uh like dune in that sense with uh, a manufactured water shortage <laughs> basically um so this early on you know i gather the real world subtext maybe i'm reading too much into this but um you know, the way you know for example the, the way religion is, is used by people disingenuously so the low-hanging fruit of evangelical support for Trump and Jerry Falwell and all that stuff that I've gone into ad nauseum. And what I can't tell <laughs> is, is this a timely critique that will lead to a richer engagement uh, with faith and people of faith? Um, is the story going where the the characters on the ground, the, the, the normal folk human characters actually discover another supernatural worldview or cosmology that enables them to overcome. Or is it going to be the, is it the tired kind of trope? Is it, or, well, so let me put it this way. Is it a timely critique or is the whole religion equals bad trope kind of tired now? Um, and and I and I hesitate to say it's the same fork in the road that the High Republic could be facing. Right? Are they actually going to engage faith seriously in its complexity, or are they going to fall back into the very simplistic engagements on both sides that I think have really led to uh, where we're at as a society in a lot of ways. Um, which gets me to the High Republic panel, which, you know, I, I hesitate to see this because after this panel, I will definitely link it to in the description. This is with from the New York Comic Con um, Meta Universe. Is that what it's called? Uh, let me see. I have it in the notes. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. Uh, okay, I didn't say. New York Comic Con Metaverse, whatever it is. They're, they're digital version of this because of the circumstances, right? Um, that panel, I, going into it, you know, I, I had this, this thing of, there's the fork in the road. Are they going to engage the complexities of faith or are they going to basically have the decline narrative that we've heard? And that George Lucas genuinely told in the first trilogy, but he did it 
also having a more robust and complex engagement of faith where at the end of the Republic, the Jedi are not so much evil, but corrupted. And yet that still allows, as we're going to see Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and Yoda and even Mace Windu ish to make good decisions to do the best they can under impossible circumstances. Um, I think people tend to see the Jedi in the late Republic as the villains. And, and that's not really the case. They're not necessarily the heroes either. <laughs> it is what a more accurate thing is. So I think with the high Republic, yes, they're going to examine that turn, but they're reaching at the point where the Jedi really are the heroes and, and the turn to them being not so much villains, but not heroes either. And that's, I think I may have mentioned this last time, but that, that's what I'm really looking forward to. Um, the thing that gets me though is, or not gets me, but, uh, the thing that really got me hooked and, and convinces me that they are going to have a serious, reasoned, uh, genuine engagement with this cosmology, this worldview, even this religious institution called the Jedi, is when they talked about, uh, so in the panel, talked about how Jedi have different, the Jedi characters that we meet are going to have different metaphors, allegories, images for the Force. And it's incredibly beautiful. Right? One character has an image of a song and that she has a voice within this chorus. Um, another Wookiee character, his his image is of a forest because he's a Wookiee and so he's a branch in this great forest. Another character has a tapestry and she's trying to find her thread and, and that gets at the difficulties in that character. Um, one character actually isn't as adept in the force. <laughs> and, and, and so the image in Claudia Gray's book is as a spider web that strong, but hard to see delicate sometimes, but there still. Um, and, and that, that though, just hearing that, you know, Oh, a character probably doesn't have a very high midi-chlorine count or whatever. Complexity, struggle. These characters are going to struggle. And that gets me to my second thing, that second big takeaway. And I just thought about this, right? Uh, I think Michael Siglain, in, in teasing the great disaster, he didn't really spell out, thankfully he didn't spell out what it is, but in teasing it, he... He says, you know, it's going to be a moment of reconsidering. I think he did said that, or Kevin Scott said that. A moment of reconsidering for the galaxy as a whole. And that that struck me that that's the moment we're in. Right? I'm helping with, with the day job with church to teach a course on apocalypticism. And all those stories are written in crisis, right? There's nothing like a crisis to push us back on our, our most fundamental commitments and to actually mine and dig in what they are. And uh, I, I, I ask the question sometimes, you know, what kinds of stories are going to be told after this pandemic? Because they're not going to be the sim similar stories, the same stories 
that are being told before. There are going to be stories being told about the pandemic. Characters, and I think some sitcoms have started to do that too. I know The High Republic was developed before all this hit, but we can't escape the fact, and the writers, of course, know this. Everyone knows this, writers, that we can't escape the fact that we are reading these stories in light of what for millions of people actually is a great disaster. And I don't necessarily mean people being furloughed or not being able to uh, go to restaurants. I mean, loved ones who have died. I mean, careers set back, right? There's a lot of tragedy and a lot of loss. You know, if a loved one dies, that is a great disaster in a lot of ways. Unless you have a sense that they had a very long, meaningful life. Even then, it, it's 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 grieving, it's mourning, it's loss. It presses us to the sense of what really matters. And so that's what's coming out of this panel. <laughs> Just to bring back to that. That's what I'm looking forward to is what kind of stories do they tell? What kind of stories, maybe put a better way of putting it, this is Star Wars' first opportunity really for us to really read a Star Wars story in light of this pandemic, in light of quarantine, really in light of the Black Lives Matter protests, even though uh, last week or two weeks ago I did go into that um, quite a bit. It, there's opportunity there for very rich reflection on the human condition, on faith, on ultimate meaning, on community, on is there a providential will that actually is guiding us and binding us together? And I'll finish tonight's episode by getting to that a little more. So that's uh, the High Republic panel. Again, I'm hopefully not going to go too, too long with this episode, but uh, I have something I do want to get touch on that. So I'm going to take a breath, have some water, and you can listen to our two. Okay, so back to our main topic, which I do want to really come to the the to land uh, with Master and Apprentice here. Um, you know, is Qui Gon's literalist turn, and what I mean by that is, you know, he, as I, as I said at the top, he starts this book, and we have the flashbacks as a Padawan. You know, Dooku sends him to to the temple or to the library to study these prophecies and and he says, well, we can't possibly interpret them literally, right? And as a kid in, in his youthfulness, Qui-Gon does start to think of them, of them literally, you know, and then Dooku says, no, hold on, <laughs> you know, their, their metaphor, their image. Um, but then he starts having, you know, then when he gets to Bajal, decades later, he starts having these dreams of this disaster going on. Uh, um, uh, you know, and, or, or sorry, of this disaster in the throne room. And it's important to point out he interprets the dream, the, the dream wrongly, right? He, I'm going to definitely spoil the ending here to a book that came out a year and a half ago. He thinks that it's an assassination attempt on 
Princess Fenry and the, the Black Guards are some other organization working against against her or or something. And yeah, my memory was sort of right. It turns out you know, she was actually commanding them the whole time. Playing rail for the fool a little bit. Uh, you know, playing everybody for the fool and actually has secretly built up this zealous well, a group of zealots, really, who who seize power by force, kick Cherka out, um, basically use their methods against them, the kind of the brutality that Cherka used turns against them. The complexity there of actually she's not as much of a good of a protagonist as we thought. She's definitely not innocent <laughs> the way we thought. But by that point with Qui-Gon, the damage had been done. And, and I don't want to focus so much on how he interprets them wrongly. By the damage had been done, his turn had been complete. He has started to really take these things literally again. And it starts with his dreams. Uh, you know, he, he does believe that there is a disaster or something coming up with the coronation. And, and he acts on it. And, and there is something that happens in the coronation, right? <laughs> um, so he, he, it's it's sort of right enough there. It's just that you have to do the work to really understand. And that's the lesson that Qui-Gon actually has to pick up in interpreting these dreams. Um, there is a very strong biblical precedent for this, especially for Christians. That... I've mentioned this before that the prophets, uh, the promises of restoration, even things like the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 were historically interpreted as the people of Israel. And, uh, you know, the people of Israel in exile. And then the, you know, the, the, the righteous servant is the people, the right, the faithful remnant who are faithful to Torah, faithful to God. Um, what we do see, actually, is in, in the Bible and in the Christian New Testament, where the hinge happens, is, you know, we see a pair of Josephs. So the hinge, this isn't so much of a hinge, but um, you know, the, the first Joseph, who has, obviously, their symbols of the wheat bowing down, the stars bowing down, but, you know, he, he takes them as, these are my brothers who are going to bow down to me, and I'm going to actually rule uh, a nation. And um, in, in the prison, he, he predicts what happens to the butler and the the, uh, uh, the bread maker, the, those guys. <laughs> right? Great musical, by the way, but also end of Genesis. Fast forward to Joseph, um, the adoptive father of Jesus, who receives a dream an angel Mary is pregnant receives a, a dream from an angel who says this child is named going to be the salvation of God he's going to be the Messiah and that is the culmination of a long process where Jews begin to interpret the these uh, these images of suffering servant and a faithful servant 
and, and messy. You know, oh, sorry. Let me let me rephrase it. Turbot, suffering servant, and faithful servant in divine agents. And this is the growth of apocalyptic literature where divine agents would come and rescue the people. Now, the the important thing to point out there is it's not an either or. It's actually a both and for for Christians in particular because or for and this is the complicated relationship between Christians and Jews or Christianity coming from Judaism and being part of Judaism is that Jesus the Messiah is suffering Israel and embodies it and unites and binds us all together. Jesus is the faithful servant of God who who um, is perfectly obedient to the will of God because he is the perfect reconciliation between God and creature. Uh, the biggest apocalyptic event that is meant to happen is the resurrection of the dead at the last day. And um, that finally gets spelled out in Daniel, which is actually a later book. And we're just, we just talked about this in the class today by about 167, 165 BCE. So that's, it's very late, but it's reflecting an oral tradition, the belief that there will, there is a day where the dead will be raised and the faithful remnant will uh, be raised together into eternal life. That's where that idea comes from. Christians uh, grapple with this reality called the resurrection. And specifically, though, what happens, Jesus is crucified, buried, and then three days later, can't find the body, the tomb is rolled away. Jesus, and the belief among Christians, we can't prove this scientifically, but the, the belief in faith that we have is the fully bodily risen Jesus Christ appears to Mary Magdalene and to the twelve, to the disciples, and to Peter. Well, Peter is the leader of the disciples, and to a hundred hundreds more people, and then is ascended into heaven. And as one untimely born, appears in a vision to St. Paul. What happens there is this fusion of what's called the allegorical and the literal. That they come together, right? The allegory of a faithful remnant being the people, the faithful remnant who are raised at the last day. They all find their meaning in this one person, Jesus, who has risen at the last day. And by that I mean risen on the third day. So what is to say is that time in that sense isn't linear. That the resurrection of Jesus is quite literally the end of the world. <laughs> that in the resurrection, in the ascension, where Jesus goes to the Father, is that full bringing, full bringing of, of creation to the Father. So what that means then, what that entails, and what's really going on there, is that Christians are reading Israel's scriptures back through the resurrection. This is something they talk about in New Testament class. Right? There's this lens that gets put on the text. It wasn't necessarily there before, but 
when it's put there, at least for Christians, believe it that that oh that's what it's always meant, and it's always meant this fusion, bringing together of the allegorical and the literal. Um, the resurrection changes everything, and and what we're really claiming there is this was what God's plan was all along. It's what God had designed to do. And so, yeah, it's, it's important that it begins with Joseph's dream there. And it's, it's very interesting that with Qui-Gon Jinn then, uh, you know, it begins with dreams about this uh, potential disaster at the, uh, the coronation. But then he starts to think, oh, I'm going to get to these in a bit. Kyber that is not Kyber. In the time of prophecy. And then when he land, you know, then, you know, he sent to this mission on Naboo two years later. And uh, the, the, the hyperdrive is out and he has to land on this planet, this out of the way planet called Tatooine. And he runs, in, runs into this nine year old kid whose midi chlorine count is off the charts. He's already primed to think in terms of the force literally willing these things to happen and come about. And I think George Lucas, and I think Claudia Gray, intends us to actually think that these things are real. Things are right in the Star Wars universe. I think when Claudia is writing these prophecies out, I think she's intending us, I could ask her, I want to ask her one day about this, Intending us to at least consider interpreting these things in light of uh, Anakin Skywalker and as Darth Vader and Luke and Rey, um, you know, Order sixty six and the rise of the Empire and the fall of the Sith, and so it's an interesting parallel there. Prophecy being about the present, being about the near future. In a way, it is moving from prophecy to apocalypse, in that sense, because um, a lot of these these words, these prophecies, and the Skywalker saga, at least George Lucas saga, we don't quite know about the sequel trilogy, the third trilogy, but you know, with Revenge of the Sith, Revenge of the Sith, Return of the Jedi, there is a finality that comes about. You know? There is this cosmic restoration that Anakin brings, and I'll get into that at the end. Um, but so, so there, there is that parallel, of not just prophecy, but apocalypse. So I'm going to take a, another swig of water. You can listen to R2. So I'm going to have a bit of fun here, and... You know, I did go through and I kept track. And let's see, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven prophecies listed. Obviously, there's meant to be so much more. They're meant to be these ancient things that come about. And probably within the context of stories would be my guess. But you never know. There might not be like, I don't know, the Q document where they're just listed as statements. But... I think there are probably synecdoches, uh, conclusions to stories, and, and almost the, the, the um, 
not so much the fortune cookie, but the punchline, if you will. So, um, let's start. So, page 117 is the first one. It was surprising when we come across these, right? Page 117, when the kyber that is not kyber shines forth, the time of prophecy will be at hand. I'm going to have a bit of fun there. So, in the book Master and Apprentice, we see Qui-Gon, this is part of his being convinced, you know, there's the colon crystals that are taken up. And um, the they're like kyber crystals, they look like kyber crystals, but and they, at the end we see they can ignite a lightsaber a little bit, uh, but they aren't necessarily force sensitive. The time of prophecy will be at hand, and that's a very apocalyptic thing, right? The hour is at hand, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, uh, for the time is near in Revelation, right? Um, the time of prophecy will be at hand. So I do think the time of prophecy there is the Skywalker saga, and especially you know, Anakin's story, and the fall of the Jedi, the rise of the Empire, etc. The Kyber that is not Kyber. I don't think necessarily specifically the, the colon crystals, although that could be a sign. I don't know, I'm trying to think here. Um, I mean, there's almost a little bit, my mind goes to the Death Star, and... And the way that that is the dark side's attempt to control kind of mastery over the force. In a way, it's saying when the dark side exposes itself, shines forth, right? The counterfeit shines forth and exposes itself. Then it's time for the force to really start to deal with it, right? The Sith being in hiding, uh, you know, through given the rule of two, at last we shall have a revenge, as Darth Maul says, right? Reveal ourselves to the Jedi. That actually proves to be their undoing, ultimately. It takes a few decades, but it happens. That's, so that, that's kind of my thought there. Um, jumping ahead to page 133-134. Only through sacrifice of many, many Jedi will the Order cleanse the sin done to the Nameless. So the sacrifice of many Jedi, it, it is hard to say this, but, you know, Order 66, um, you know, they, they sacrifice themselves, not willingly, and that's why it's hard to say this, call this a sacrifice. But, you know, they, they do, uh, they, they are purged. And the sin done to the nameless, uh, they fall from their perch. And my mind goes straight to if you go back to, to May and my episode with Dylan about the uh, the Martez arc, these nameless people throughout the galaxy who the Jedi just don't care about and don't have much to do with. The sin, not of conquest, but of indifference. And as a result, the people are easy to turn on them. So the, the, the consequences of that sin... They're not there to support them against the rise of the Sith. Um, the Jedi, you know, I, I said earlier in this episode, they're not evil, but they are corrupted. And yet, you know, there still is a purification that needs to happen. Purging, purification. It's tragic, and it's evil. <laughs> Order 66 is evil. 
but it's the consequence of the Jedi's own arrogance and own again I, I, I love, I've loved this image that I've thought about since uh, since my episode one series the beginning of last year they're literally sitting on top of the galaxy and not really caring about who's below them enough the danger of the past is not the past this is another one the danger of the past is not the past but sleeps in an egg when the egg cracks it will threaten the galaxy entire and I think I'm going to combine it with the next one when the force itself sickens past and future must split and combine I think a few things there I think of again the Sith being buried in the rule of two and hidden and the Jedi you know at episode one they think oh they're just a myth out of the past or not so much a myth but something you can find in history we're safe from them and then they burst through and they crack through and they threaten the galaxy entire right and the force sickens past and future must split must split and combine that I actually think will split and combine, I think, more positively. And this is what makes me think of actually Ray's story and Luke's story, right? Um, yeah, we need to see them as discrete stories. With Ray, you know, there is the, the I don't know, well, uh, this is something I hope the Mandalorian gets into a little bit, the, uh, the forgetting of the Force that needs to be woken up, right? Needs to awaken. Uh, that's that splitting. And then when it awakens in Ray, then she can actually receive the books and study and learn about what Anakin did and learn about what Luke did. And the three heroes of the, the saga can actually come together and bring balance to the force uh, I'll get to that one in a minute <laughs> jumping to page 288 I'll get to the balance of the force in a minute jumping to page 288 he who learns to conquer death will through his greatest student live again this one is interesting because it's this is the one that Dooku is looking at and specifically named the Duke was looking at that, and we know it's shortly before he falls to the dark side. And clearly he's going to learn something about Darth Plagueis. And I think we're supposed to uh, make a connection, and the Duke himself probably ends up making this connection between this idea of conquering death, living through his greatest student as... Uh, I mean, kind of maybe what we see with Darth Sidious and Rise of Skywalker, although Claude Agri wouldn't have known that at the time. But uh, Darth Sidious and the Rise of Skywalker as, you know, strike me down and I'm going to take over your body. This is the weird lore of that movie. But the idea of, again, mastering control over the Force and manipulating midi-chlorians through this very technical, scientific way and through the power of the Empire and um, this idea of conquering death. 
That's the dark side interpretation, right? Really, though, it means the exact opposite. If the light side means something a lot like Yoda's, we are what they grow beyond. That is the way of all masters. That to conquer death, this is very being me being very Christian, right? To conquer death is to resist the power of death to define our lives. It doesn't mean to uh, not succumb to death, to preserve your life through these artificial means, unnatural means. It actually, in a way, means to accept death. Right? Yoda is able ultimately to accept his own death when he's able to, to let Luke move on and grow beyond him. Luke in The Last Jedi, and again, this is important because this was written shortly after The Last Jedi came out, right? Or, yeah, I believe so. Or maybe, I forget, I'm trying to figure out the timeline. Yeah. Well, maybe a year after, sorry, a year after The Last Jedi came out. Anyway, let's back up track. Luke is finally able to accept his death when he hears Yoda say, we are the girl beyond, right? When he's able to give his life to preserve Rey and so she can actually learn to lead people, lead the resistance to come back and join, you know, to split and then combine and be part of that work of balance, bringing balance. Right? We are, they grow beyond. Okay, and then I'll get to this one here. And, and finally, we, we actually get the Chosen One prophecy. Um, a Chosen One shall come. This is back on page 134. A Chosen One shall come, born of no father, and through him will ultimate balance be restored. One of the, uh, one of the, the great prophecies of Isaiah, the great messianic prophecies, is a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting God, the Prince of Peace, God with us. Right? And again, you know the, that historically, traditionally spoke of the faithful remnant having dominion because everyone is gathered. The whole planet is everyone on the planet is gathered to worship and become part of the people of God. And it's taken literally, you know, a virgin shall conceive, Mary conceives. So I do wonder if the initial authors of this Chosen One prophecy did mean the Jedi purified of their sins <laughs> to the nameless, then to the nameless. Um, because that is what the virgin birth entails, right? It, it talks about you know, and then this may be a problematic approach to sexuality, if you if you will. But a virgin birth, you know, the, without the the mess and complexity and the taint, if you will, of sin, um, it, it's one of the things that we point to and say, yes, Jesus is God, <laughs> uh, right? That that's what that's about, and then you know, Mary being pure herself. And there's a sign, you know, the church being a pure virgin mother. 
those images, um, you know, and, and this goes back to the very origins of this podcast, right? Where everything was the, that one-to-one, not a resonance, but a parallel with Shmi and Mary and Anakin and Jesus there for Christ's sake, right? Um, you know, chosen one shall come, born of no father, through whom ultimate balance be restored. And, you know, it, it is, you know, you, you can't blame Qui-Gon for coming across this kid and his midichlorian count is off the charts. And again, there's no father. Is he conceived by the force, right? If you, if you really believe that Anakin is conceived by the force, then you know, you've got to believe that there's some sort this is some sort of intervention to restore some balance, which is interesting because at that time, did Qui-Gon even see an imbalance? Well, he shortly does with the return of the Sith, right? What's interesting, getting on that point of balance, and I'll take a swig of water here. You know, the, there's we've gone back and forth, the fandom, since 1999. They've gone back and forth. What does balance mean? And Claudia Gray actually brings up the debate herself in the book. Right? She has Rail Avros and Qui-Gon uh, duke it out. Or they're sparring. And Rail himself brings up uh, this idea of balance. What if balance means that there won't be there will always be light and dark? I'll actually bring it up. Read it up. This is on page 259. And I'm bringing this up because to me, for two reasons. It really hits at what balances and it's Qui-Gon's own prophetic oracle. Okay. This is 259. I'm going to read in depth because it's a beautiful passage and it really gets to you know the heart of this book, the heart of what I believe the Jedi are, are meant to be. It really resonates with uh, how I approach faith and hope. So, Rail and, and Qui-Gon are sparring. Um, you know, Rail's sort of trying to accept, the, come to grips with some of the situation, especially with uh, Holland's group not being as evil as, <laughs> you know, uh, not really being evil at all, but just in our performance group and caught up in the, the, work, the mess of the Black Guards. Anyway, page 259. Do you still have faith? Qui-Gon asked, taking a step forward. Their lightsabers weren't touching, but were so close sparks crackled between them. That's all that matters here. Let's say I do, Rail answered. Let's say I believe that someday there's going to be perfect balance in the Force, thanks to some kind of chosen one. Did you ever really think about what that would mean, Qui-Gon? would mean the darkness would be just as strong as the light. So it doesn't matter what we do, because in the end, hey, it's a tie. It doesn't matter which side we choose. And that's interesting, that he's resigned. He's uh, just kind of not worried about the ethics enough, or you know, just given up and says... Um, you know, it's going to be tie. It, it, it's almost this... No, almost this nihilist sort of, oh, this balance, it doesn't really matter. 
Qui-Gon straightened and deactivated his blade. Rail took a step back, lowering his lightsaber, but keeping it on. This is the quote. It matters, Qui-Gon said quietly. It matters which side we choose. Even if there will never be more light than darkness. Even if there can be no more joy in the galaxy than there is pain. For every action we undertake, every word we speak, for every life we touch, it matters. I don't turn toward the light because it means someday I'll win some sort of cosmic game. I turn toward it because it is the light. So that undergirds Qui-Gon's literalist turn, at least in terms of what helps him be sensitive to the living force. He goes from there and he's able to risk uh, being ostracized by the Jedi Order for taking this kid seriously, this Anakin kid seriously. He's not in it to win. And, and here's the, 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 the important point is, you know, it's not that our, our benefit doesn't matter. My benefit doesn't matter. What I want, it's not that what I want doesn't matter. It does. What you want matters. Your welfare matters. But the problem is when that becomes our definitive statement and our definitive um, perspective and viewpoint, what drives us? Right. For Qui-Gon, where he really comes to the end of this book is, and he's, he's already there, but where it really comes out is... Um, Yeah, what, what I was getting bef bef at before with learning to conquer death. He isn't in it just to stay alive. He's in it to really live in the light. Because it is the light. Because the galaxy, the universe, is oriented toward this harmony of the living force. And it's a question not of, are you going to, make the most of it you're going to make it happen for yourself it's really a question of are you going to be a part of this flow here's another image a part of this river or are you going to fight against it <laughs> right. for Qui-Gon it becomes very clear that he is going to do everything he can to stay moving with the river dancing with the dance if that means uh, not joining the Jedi Order, if that means continuing to train Obi-Wan, if that means putting his faith in this nine-year-old kid to do something he doesn't fully understand, but he has this sense burning within him, if that means he can let go of life while Obi-Wan is watching, knowing that Obi-Wan will emerge as one of the great Jedi Masters of the age. If he can then become the first Jedi in millennia, 
to become one with the Force and return. He's not doing it because he can win a cosmic game. You know, it's kind of saying, well, maybe, you know, just if, just if this was about light and dark coming, being equal, it still doesn't matter. I'm still going to follow the light. Right? <laughs> like Jesus saying, you know, the poor you always have with us. We will always be struggling, grappling with the corruption of our own sin and evil. We will never be perfect, have it perfectly figured out until we're resigned. Not resigned. Until we're embracing of the end that is beyond us. That our end is beyond us. Our goal, our purpose is beyond us. And that is in resurrection. I'm preaching here. <laughs> Qui-Gon Jinn is able to embrace that and is able to become one with the Force because his perspective is wholly towards the light. Again, not to win a cosmic game, but because it is the light. So with that, I'm going to call it a, a night, call it an episode. This has been episode 63 of For Christ's Sake Anakin. It's been... Part 5, I believe, of this Master Apprentice series. Uh, I will start Thrawn Ascendancy Chaos Rising. Just a little plug there. I'll start that tonight or tomorrow. Um, but I'm going to let this sit on the internet. <laughs> if you liked what you heard, if you did like, didn't like what you heard, please, either way, let me know at NEUG485 on Twitter. Give me a follow at I'm in at MNEUG1138 on Instagram. Please share, like, comment, etc. Thanks for listening. May the force and may the light be with you always. <laughs>